Uh, hey, we've got kind of a fun Sunday for you this morning, um, and it kind of worked out in some, some strange different ways, but about six months ago, five months ago, four months ago, I don't remember how many months ago it was, but I invited a friend of mine to come speak this morning, and we're going to kind of be able to introduce her in a little while, uh, but wanted Jenny Yang to be able to come out and share with us, because Jenny's a colleague at World Relief and is just a phenomenal person. She's given her life to advocacy things, uh, works on Capitol Hill, puts together breakfasts that uh, bring all sorts of evangelical leaders together on topics like immigration and gets people like Obama to show up for meetings like that. It's just a very rare sliver of life, and so I think it gives her a credibility to speak to an intersection that I think is really hard for most of us to kind of grab hold of, and that's how do we take the things that are in Scripture, um, our own kind of personal faith and life and all the strange constraints there, and then also this whole idea of public policy. And how do those things really relate or connect? And I, I don't know too many people that really get that, and I don't know too many people that have the experience background she does. And so um, we all kind of have those issues of wanting to change the world and feeling heavy and, and always feeling how in the world do I make a difference that way? Uh, it's endemic, actually, and, and um, we're a part of that sometimes. You probably come to Antioch and think, man, I'm always walking out and feeling guilty. Uh, but I want there to be a conversation that, that gets a little deeper to the level of calling, not just felt needs or urgency, but allows us as a church, allows us as individuals just to put our lives before God and say, how... How would God use me if instead of just saying, what do I do right now? What do I do right, you know, right now, trafficking? How do I end it now, today, on Facebook? <laughs> you know, it's like, really? I'm not going to end it on Facebook uh, or today. But how do, we, how do we come to God maybe and say, instead of now, 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 and all this guilt and all this sense of urgency, how do we come and just put our lives in front of God and say, talk to me about my calling. Talk to me about how you would use the next 10, 20 years of my life if I would just give you my life. Um, show me how that might work with my family or my career or my job. And so there's this conversation that I, I really want to get at over the next year or two or however long. But we really get away from this um, felt emotionalism all the time and just wrestle with what does it mean to put our lives before God and let him begin to direct that. So I'm kind of excited to have Jenny here today. But before we bring her up, um, I have a friend, Stephen Bowman, who's here, and, and he can come on up. And Stephen is the president and CEO of World Relief. And so all of a sudden we got a World Relief monopoly going today. And since Stephen was here, I kind of thought it would be appropriate and kind of fun for him to be able to give the introduction uh, for Jenny, who's going to come up and share with us. So Stephen, if you would. Yes, thank you. And if you want to follow the Rice for Congo World Relief .org, and there's a link right off the front page, Rice for the Congo. We'll be blogging and videoing and so forth. Jenny Yang is a personal hero of mine and my wife. Jenny is driven by a core passion. You'll see it as she speaks, as she tells stories. Core passion first for Christ, for his word, for God's word, and for those who are absent, those who are left out, those who are on the margins. And Jenny is a passionate uh, activist in all the best sense of that word. Jenny uh, went to the University of Johns Hopkins, studied international relations, 
and worked for Wobbelief for a number of years before she took her current role, which is Director of Advocacy and Policy. She's written a book called Welcoming the Stranger. Do you have copies of that book? Perhaps in the bookstore there might be some. All on the issue of immigration, coming from a biblical point of view, what is it that um, God calls us to do, and how do we respond to the stranger, to the immigrant? And it's a powerful book. If you have questions on that theme, Jenny can answer them today, but also in her book. Um, so welcome, Jenny. We're glad to have you, and uh, give us your thoughts today. Thank you. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, it's always a pleasure for me to be here. Um, the first time I was in Ben was early in uh, this year in February where I was participating in the Justice Conference. And every time I come, I just realize what a beautiful part of the country this is. Um, I'm originally from, born and raised in Philadelphia. I ended up in Baltimore because I went to Johns Hopkins. And as Stephen said, I've been working there um, for the past almost 10 years now, um, working at World Relief. Um, what's interesting is that in 2006, when I started as a director for advocacy, it was funny because when I told my friends and my family that I was doing advocacy, they asked me, well, advocacy, what, what's advocacy? What do you do on a day-to-day -day basis? What does that mean? And what do you actually do for, for World Relief? Um, and it was interesting because when I took on this full-time position um, of advocacy at World Relief, um, one of the issues that I started focusing on was the issue of immigration. Um, and part of my job as um, the advocacy director was to educate churches to get them engaged on the issue that concerned world relief, and one of them was immigration. But the other part of that was to bring the Christian voice into the political realm where legislators are making policies and laws every day that affect millions of people, and especially millions of very poor and disenfranchised people and to make that Christian voice heard. And what I realized in the, literally the first three months of me starting in a full-time advocacy position was that on a lot of issues, not just with immigration, the Christian voice was completely absent. On a lot of the justice issues, on the news we hear about a lot of the suffering um, in the Horn of Africa these days, um, and maybe Congo, and maybe immigration, I realized that a lot of Christians weren't using their voice to influence legislatures. And in fact, what happened was that a lot of um, policymakers ended up making policies that weren't necessarily reflective of biblical values, um, and in fact harmed a lot of the people that I feel like God um, has a deep concern for. Um, so today, I'm going to spend a little bit of my time talking about Scripture and how that um, equips Christians to be a voice for those who don't have a voice. And I also want to spend my time looking at one specific biblical character to really use as an example for us when we feel burdened to know how to respond in a way um, where we can use advocacy um, to help those who are in need. But I want to share first about two specific instances of oppression um, and of injustice around the world that many of you um, may or may not know about. And the first is um, the issue of refugees who are fleeing from Burma. Um, I went in April with a team of about three people, a photographer, a lawyer, and then a former person from Burma, um, to the northeast corner of India to a state called Mizoram. And many, I had not heard of Mizoram um, more than eight, two years ago, but this is a very small state in India where it's over 90% Christian. So the church is very, very strong in India. But what has happened to this small Christian community in this area of India is that 70% of its border is international. So on the western side of Mizoram, 
um, you have Bangladesh, and then on the eastern side, you have Burma. And Mizoram has become a refuge for the thousands of people who are fleeing from Burma. And what we saw when we went to the Mizoram is that there was around 100,000 refugees who had fled from Burma and are living in Mizoram. And that makes up about 10% of the entire population of Mizoram. And we heard horrific stories of what these people went through in Burma. And a lot of times we think, oh, you know, they fled across the border. But most oftentimes with refugees, they don't want to leave their homes. They don't want to leave everything behind. But oftentimes they're forced into a situation where they have to because they're fleeing um, danger and, and, and fear of their lives. Um, you can see from this photo here that Mizoram is a beautiful area of India. It's very mountainous. Um, but when we met a lot of these refugees, they were living in tiny, tiny huts along the side of the road. Um, this man had been living in Mizoram for over about five years with his family, and he was actually taking care of about five kids in his area. Um, this was a man whose brother had actually fought against the Burmese military, and that's why he was persecuted. He was actually detained for over a month in Burma, and then he fled across the border into India, and he was living in a tiny little hut when we had the chance to talk to him. And because refugees fled into this area of India, a lot of them are actually not recognized by the Indian government. They're actually completely ignored by the Indian government. So many of them, because they don't have any legal status or any kind of documentation, um, what happens is they work in the underground economy in this area of India. And for example, they work in places like rock quarries. And from the rock quarries, they get the rocks and they cut them into little um, pieces so that they can actually use them for construction and for the building of houses. Um, these refugees, because they don't have documentation, get paid about 2 to $3 a day. They work 10 to 12 hours a day. And in certain cases, they don't even get paid at all because they have no, no voice to actually say that they have the right to even get paid in their society. And one of the biggest instances of oppression that we actually saw in Mizoram, and this is something we hadn't even heard about when we were um, researching things before our trip, was that when we talked to all the church leaders, they said that there's such a high rate of death in their community. And one of the most blatant forms of discrimination is that they can't bury their own dead within the city limits. So they have to literally spend all their resources and all the hard-earned money they have to transport a dead body to the outskirts of the city. And you can see in this photograph here that they are given a plot of land where they have to spend hours a day clearing the brush so they can literally bury just one dead body. And this is a big concern for the Christian leaders there because when someone dies, it's an opportunity for them to celebrate the life of the person who passed away. But here in Mizoram, they didn't just flee persecution in Burma, but they're discriminated against in India. And they're literally castigated to the margins of society where they have to bury their dead in places like this. Um, we also met with groups of refugees, and what we found in this one circumstance was that there was about 35 leaders who gathered at this one church. Um, and we asked